electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Scott Wapner, front and center is that great divergence. The Dow dramatically outperforming the Nasdaq today as one of our own investment committee members is making a big bet against tech. Details straight ahead. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss. Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. And Jenny Harrington is the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. I'll take you to the wall. I'll show you the slide we're talking about. There's the Dow up about 30 points. The Nasdaq is down by more than 200, nearly 230. That's a loss of one and two thirds percent. Steve Weiss, I go to you because as I tease, you're making some big time moves in tech. You are short the SMH now. You have new puts on Skyworks. You have new puts in the Qs. You're short Corvo calls and all in. You're 30 percent now in cash. Talk to me. (laughs) Yeah, so I shaved most positions, uh, not really touching many of the core positions. As a matter of fact, added to a couple of them. Those are really hedges. If I thought they were going to be sustained sell-off in technology, I would have sold them and said, hey, taxes be damned, I'll, I'll pay the taxes. But, you know, you can't be ignorant and blind to what's going on. So while I think the old playbook doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of selling growth when the economy is improving, when rates are going higher, because I'm in the right names, most PMs feel they are, of course, but I'm in the digital names, I'm in the 5G names, I'm in the, the tech stocks that don't have multiples above the market for the most part, like Skyworks, selling at a big discount to the market. However, stocks had a great run. I mean, it's more than doubled for me. So when I can find cheap puts because the vol is low, then I'm going to take advantage of them. In terms of the SMH being short that, well, I've got a lot of, of semi-exposure. So what I'm looking to do is to hedge through this period of volatility, and hopefully I'll pick up some premium. Others, I'll protect my downside. At the same time, I've also made some moves more into the reopening or the inflationary or reflationary trades. So I've got a new position. Maybe we'll talk about that later on. But I've added to SQM. I've also added to B of A in terms of the interest rate moves. So just trying to get the portfolio in place. And I thought that being 30% cash is the right level. I could add to it, but with what's going on in the NASDAQ, it was just prudent to be prudent about my portfolio the, the, take some risk The off. question, Jenny, is how long do we witness this now, uh, what's going on in the NASDAQ, as Steve Weiss said? And is it directly related to this rise in interest rates? Whether you think rates are rising for the right reasons isn't really the question. You take what the market giveth. And the market right now says higher rates may be bad for these growth stocks. Right. So to answer the first question, how long could this last? I think this could last a period of years. The divergence between, and I really hate saying it this way, but it's just the easy way to say it, so forgive me. The divergence between growth and value. 
Is it an unpre- even even with it narrowing, is still at an unprecedented level? Is it a level that we hadn't seen since the 1920s, or you want to bring that in just say since 2000? We haven't seen still, even with the improvement in value over the last five or six months, it's still at one of the widest levels since the 2000s, since pre dot com bust. So those so that is very wide still. There's a lot of runway for the value trade. You know anything that was lag anything that lagged. There's still a lot of runway for that to close the gap and for those relative valuations to come more in line. There's a lot of mean reversion ahead. With respect to interest rates, there's a lot of reasons this is happening. Interest rates are going to be one cog in the wheel, and they're an important cog in the wheel. If we look at what happened last year, we saw the interest, the 10-year Treasury go from about 1.6 to about 0.5. And with that move, valuation multiple points were added, but they weren't added across the board. They were added to the big part of the market. They were added to the stocks that were trading at 30, 40, 70 times earnings. The laggards got none of that. So what you're seeing now is, yeah, interest rates are going up. They're pulling some multiple points back. They're pulling them back from the ones who got their disproportionate share of them last year. And those who lagged, they're just stepping up. I don't think that they're getting multiple points because of interest rates, but their their earnings are still there. Cash flows are still there. They're getting multiple points back because they deserve them, because they have earnings and revenue growth and cash flows. Um, so interest rates are part of it, but they're not everything. So, so Joe, you know, the, the thing that stands out most to me, what Jenny just said now is years, okay, that this can last for years, that you've had such a, an elongated underperformance of value stocks that in Jenny's mind, this is it. This is the moment. This is the moment that everybody has been waiting for and calling on the one that looked like it was going to get started a million times and did not. Now, this is it. Do you agree or disagree with Jenny's take? I disagree with that, but my view on that happens to be meaningless because projecting out where we're going to be over several years is very difficult to do. I think what's important to understand is what is exactly going on right now. And Jenny's right about one thing. In terms of positioning, the underweights are now the heavyweights within the market. If I study the last 12 years, the NASDAQ versus the S&P in terms of performance, the S&P has only outperformed the NASDAQ in one year, and that's in 2016. And I think the template is in place for 2021, and it is the year of 2016. Now, markets do a great job of chasing performance, and if we are going to look like we did in 2016 when the S&P outperformed the NASDAQ, it is going to mean that you're going to see Apple and Amazon and Microsoft have modest returns for the year. In 2016, they were up about 10%. But guess what? Oil and gas was up 50%. Steel was up 49%. Construction machinery was up 40%. And regional banks were up 30%. And shame on me for not picking it up earlier. But I think that's exactly what's going on right now. The S&P for the first time this year is actually outperforming the Nasdaq. And I think this is just a replay of the reflation of 2016. OK, so if you, you know, you admonish yourself for sort of missing it in 16, are you on that train now? And does your portfolio reflect the view that you have now and also taking into consideration what you missed then? Yeah, no, I'm not admonishing myself because in 16, I picked up on it quickly. What I'm saying is in 20, the end of 2020 and early into 2021, I have not picked it up fast enough. I am beginning to uh, position more accordingly to what the environment is right now. So as you know, I've added Uber, I've added Old Dominion, I've added Bungie, I've added LPX. 
Uh, today, I took a look at my position. I sold out of the MCHI, which was the China ETF. I took a position uh, today in ALK. I talked with you on Friday about wanting to get into the airline. So I'm beginning to make that slow transition, Scott, because I'm more acceptant of this reflationary environment in which you're going to see the outperformance in places that were previously thought of as underweight positionally. Very interesting moves um, that you're making there and what that says about your broad view of the market. So, Shan, if we focus on what tech is doing here, you've got a lot of the mega cap names, as you know, Joe points to, you know, the underperformance relative to the S&P of some of those mega cap tech stocks from years ago. Facebook's still 14 percent below its high. Apple's 12 percent. Netflix is 10%, Amazon is 10%, and even Microsoft, um, it's 5% below its high. So do we, do we get a, a, a run in those stocks again, or are they going to be on the sidelines for a little bit? Well, Scott, I mean, we, we, we trimmed our Microsoft and Apple positions in the fourth quarter of last year, um, and I do think that they could be on the sidelines. And I think everybody's talked a lot about interest rates. Um, I want to also caution, you know, technology stocks are one of the biggest beneficiaries of the corporate tax rate changes um, in 2017. And so if we think about kind of the dual pressure of interest rates and uh, higher tax corporate tax rate, I, I do think that there could be some concern. You couple that, you know, with some of this, per, you know, potential regulatory pressure, which I think long term doesn't have a meaningful impact on how these companies are able to generate revenues and earnings. One thing that Jenny did say that I want to pick up on as it relates to technology, if you want to think about revenues and earnings and cash flows, wow, some of these big tech companies do a really good job in all three of those places. So I do think that there could be, from a relative perspective, that these companies could be underwhelming. But I would caution that if we're looking towards expanding economic growth globally and we're anticipating there being a really a real acceleration in growth globally in the second half of this year and then into next year, I'm sorry, but I think technology companies are going to benefit from that. I think higher enterprise spend is certainly going to help some of these big names. And so while from a relative perspective, they may be laggard, similar to what Joe described in 2016, I think as the core of your portfolio, earning a dividend and getting ready for this rising tide lifting all boats that's going to come into next year, I think you're, you're, you're not bad off holding some of these large tech names. Some of the other higher priced growth stocks, I certainly would agree. I think we're going to continue to see pressure, despite some of the ones like we talked about earlier, doing well today, something like a Spotify. So take me through then, you, you bought eBay, okay, and maybe this plays right into what you're talking about, and you sold Dominion Energy. So take me through that, that trade, not suggesting that it's a pair trade in any way, but it is interesting to me, one obviously in tech and one obviously in the oil patch, a, a perceived value play. Well, and I would say that I would see that completely differently than what you just described. Okay. So I think in selling Dominion, um, <laughs> you're looking at that in terms of a utility. Um, they don't particularly perform well during a inflationary trade. This stock has traded between a range of 65 and 80 over the last five years, really hasn't done much. Um, we actually owned it because we were hoping that it would get some investor interest based on their pivot to renewables. We really haven't seen that excitement. And as the second or third derivative to the clean energy trade, we don't think it's a great place to be. eBay, on the other hand, I think if I look at that, I think about that more in terms of a consumer name that I feel is capitalizing on this shift to e-commerce, which I don't think will change. 
One of the things that they've done is that they've gotten rid of StubHub, they've gotten rid of classifieds, so they've refocused on their core marketplace business, which if you look at it from the perspective of competing with Amazon and increasingly Etsy, um, eBay offers a differentiated experience. It's, you know, I know everybody's getting sick of this word, but a curated experience where you can find exactly what you're looking for, especially in areas like collectibles. So from, from that vantage point, I think this is just another way to play the consumer rebound in a much more nuanced way. Well, one of our headline guests agrees with you, uh, certainly in a consumer rebound, because Dubrovko Lakos is now one of the most bullish strategists on Wall Street. He's the U.S. Uh, head of equity strategy and global quantitative research at J.P. Morgan. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. You play right into this because your sector buys are discretionary energy and financials value all the way. Yes, look, there's been two big themes that we've been pushing, uh, even as part of our, if you look at 2021 outlook that we published in 4Q of last year, two themes really. One is reflation, um, and a lot of that is a function of economy reopening uh, and the imbalance, imbalance that you're seeing between sort of pent-up demand and somewhat of a more constrained supply story. And then the other big theme is U.S. consumer that we also touched upon in our report from last Friday, where we see a very, very powerful setup for the U.S. consumer, both in terms of not just cash reserve, but also balance sheets, uh, a labor market that continues to heal, more stimulus that continues to come our way. And all of this, as we're basically going into to second quarter of this year, which we really think uh, we'll start to see a more proper reopening, at least domestically. So I think the setup there is, is, is quite attractive, and I, I think that should continue to help lift, lift the uh, equity market higher. What, what's in the market and what isn't? In terms of what's priced in? Yeah. I mean, what, so th that's a tough one. But what I would say is, look, you know, we, we've definitely moved away from call it a multiple re-rating story, which was very much so the case over the course of the last six, nine months. And now we're basically moving more and more towards the earnings growth story, and we're getting closer to that. So look, consensus, for instance, when you ask what's priced in, like, you know, you look at EPS consensus uh, figures for S&P for end of this year, they're 175, give or take. Our numbers now are 185. So we think that there is still upside and then we think that people are still underestimating the demand shock that we likely start to see starting in second quarter. Uh, I think that people are also too conservative when you sort of think about 2022, where for instance we have a 205 EPS estimate and we think that most of the underappreciation really lies in the more cyclical consumer reflationary type sectors. And people are slowly warming up to them now, but we think there's, there's more to go. So I think those areas are, are definitely far from being fully priced in. What, what do higher rates, though, do to multiples if they continue to go up? So first of all, that's you know, a very good question, a very difficult question. And the other thing I'll say, there's no really historic playbook that you can take and say, this is exactly how we need to look at it right now. Every environment, you know, every cycle is sort of unique in its own way. Certainly the current one, just given the unprecedented, you know, injections of stimulus and so forth. Higher rates, historically, the first question should really be, what is driving rates higher? If healthier growth and healthier reflationary dynamics are driving rates higher, equity markets should be just fine. Now, yes, no question that you will likely continue to see a rotation within the market. Certain segments of equities will be under more multiple pressure, such as bond proxies and maybe defensive growth, such as mega cap tech that you guys talked on the show earlier. But I would say higher growth stories that are very much so a function of uh, powerful underlying catalysts and then very much so also the cyclical trade, those are areas that I think you know, should be able to cope with higher rates without any issues. So bottom line, I think the equity market is just fine. And 
you know, we're kind of going through a little bit of a paradigm shift from, call it falling rates and deflation to now rising rates, reflation. And look, it's not going to be a smooth ride. There's going to be anxiety and there's going to be volatility. And a day like today, you know, should not be of surprise. But I think the equity market should be just fine in the coming months and in the coming quarters as rates move up again, as I mentioned, for the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, interesting. You know, are, are you thinking that mega cap tech is, is going to be in trouble for a little while? That, that's what it sounded like you're, you're saying. On a relative basis, I would say yes. On absolute basis, probably no. I think on an absolute basis, you're not, probably not going to lose money. On a relative basis, you will probably underperform. I think what's going to happen there is just basically a convergence between the P and the E. So in other words, you know, multiple compresses a little bit. The fundamental stories are still very much so intact and very powerful. Uh, and so I think, look, yeah, they're not going to really be your leader in the portfolio. You really need to think about the reopening trade, the epicenter stocks, gaming, leisure, retail, energy. Those are the areas that, you know, I, I would argue are the ones that will have more of a leading component. To you them. know, I'm, I know that the committee wants to get in and ask you some questions, too. But the, the other one that I have, because I think it, it just is a natural flow from what we're talking about, um, is the idea of the Fed getting in, involved and becoming what some would describe, like, you know, I think of Lee Cooperman in the way he describes it, of a hostile Fed. You paint a very bullish scenario in which rates are going to continue to go up. The economy is going to roar in the second half of the year. Jay Powell and company, they're just going to sit back and watch all that take place? Well, I mean, look, you have, first of all, you have the Fed fund policy rate, and they've told us over and over and over and over, including our own economists at J.P. Morgan, that, you know, Fed funds rate is not going anywhere anytime soon. So that, that I don't see them necessarily changing that. Uh, and that's not our house view. Uh, yes, there is the question about, you know, when do they potentially start to taper the balance sheet? And, and, you know, that could definitely create some volatility in the equity market. I would say on the early side, probably nothing to worry about until sort of June period, right? On the early side, right? So, so, so again, I think the next few months, you really want to be stepping on the pedal uh, and, and sort of putting risk to work. As we go into the summer, then again, it may be time to perhaps take, you know, take a pause and sort of reevaluate re the situation, but not right now. Base case year-end, uh, 4,400 on, on the S&P, so you're very bullish. That's 12% upside from here. Jenny Harrington has a question for you. Jenny? Hi, Dubrovko. Um, thanks for all that. I always listen to you and wish that I could be as succinct and eloquent. So you just started to touch on when, when we start to taper, um, that at that point you want to take your foot off the pedal. And this is something I struggle with, which is if we say the market looks out 6 to 12 months, mm -hmm. is it really June or is it ahead of that? And then also, so, so when, I, you know, when I think that, oh, I'm behind you and I'm positive and I agree and I think you're spot on with your assessment, but what, what needles at me is that fear of tapering and understanding that the Fed balance sheet is highly correlated, you know, for better or worse, to the S&P 500. So worrying about what the time frame is on that. And then also if you can just touch on margin debt, because that's something that we've seen margin debt at, is at its highest levels. And how does that maybe play in? How do, you, how do you balance the negatives of those forces versus your otherwise bullish scenario? So first of all, look, our outlook in, in our outlook that we published in December of last year, we basically said 2021, very positive year for equities. And we also specifically highlighted that we think it will be front loaded, meaning most of the action, most of the juice will get priced in and will play out in the first half of the year. Uh, we had a, a short term price target of 4000 is something that we think is reachable early this year. Uh, and then 4400 is sort of the, the bigger, sort of more, a little bit more longer term pr price target for 21. Now, you know, tapering, it's a good question. You know, our house view is that tapering likely doesn't materialize until end of this year. 
what the market will care about the, is, is the first hint that the Fed basically gives you, right? And, you know, what could happen very well is if we do have this demand shock and a blowout growth quarter, uh, in, in, blowout second quarter, you know, growth, then you could perhaps start to see as early as June, the Fed start to perhaps hint at some form of tapering, right? And so that's why I kind of say between now and the summer, uh, I would sort of, you know, say higher conviction, uh, the road is cl cleaner, clearer. Um, and, and this is when you want to be putting, the, the, you know, the, 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 risk, the risk to work. I think as you go into June and, and from there onwards, the situation maybe becomes still positive, but just not as perhaps compelling. It's interesting. Right? I, I'm somewhat surprised. I mean, June almost sounds too soon. Uh, it just doesn't seem like it's that far down the road for the Fed to, you know, consider consider tapering. I can't imagine what the market reaction would be and whether market participants at this very moment are prepared for that scenario. Joe, do you have a question for Dubrovko? I do, Scott. Thank you. Good afternoon, Dubrovko. So, Dubrovko, so far year to date in terms of equity strategy, the market is rewarding weak balance sheets. The market is rewarding sales into Western Europe, low liquidity stocks. It's not re uh, rewarding what we knew it to previously reward, which was domestic sales, a strong balance sheets, a high liquidity. At a certain point, do markets become more judicious in terms of that performance towards what we would regard as trashier equity names? Look, so uh, the market has been rewarding the higher quality cohort of equities for a number of years in a row, a number of years in a row, and the pandemic was basically the dot on the eye or the basically the nail in the coffin uh, for the junk for the low quality stocks, right? So you've had this massive, massive divergence that's taken place and played out over multiple years. So again, we're, we're witnessing the rotation now into junk, as you basically described, uh, call it some form of value. Uh, it's been going on for about three months, uh, but we don't think it's over yet because the economy still hasn't really reopened. There's more stimulus on, on, on the sideline. And, 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 and so, you know, you, you know a, a, again, this is a little bit of a wake-up call, I think, for many of the people that have been just historically sitting on this long momentum secular growth trade. Not to say that that trade won't come back. It will come back. But we're now basically going through a, um, through a reacceleration, revivement of the underlying, you know, business cycle. And so we think this has legs for not just several months, probably several quarters. Wow. Yeah. Uh, always fun to talk to you, Dubrovko. Appreciate the time as always. We'll see you soon. Dubrovko Lakos. Thank uh, you. JP Morgan. All right, Weiss, I'm coming back to you. You have two new positions. You teased our viewers with them, so let's do it here. Uh, Cleveland Cliffs, right? And and Atcor? Yep. Cleveland is that, Cliffs. Is, at, is it Atcor? Is that how you pronounce that? I don't, I don't know that company. Yes. Atcor. And one of the reasons I like it, I've done pretty well with under-the-radar companies. Uh, Atcor is very leveraged to the economy. They put up a great quarter. They're on a fiscal September quarter. So their first quarter showed 144% increase in earnings and 15% increase in revenues. So think of them as a PVC pipe company. Think of them as a metal pipe company in healthcare, in data centers, in construction. So they're in 65 company, countries. Uh, it's a good company. They continue to surprise the upside even through the pandemic. So I think that's going to do pretty well. And 12 times their estimate right now that they provided in the most recent conference call of about 580 per share as a midpoint, it's exceedingly cheap and it's got a solid balance sheet. Uh, so I like this one quite a bit. It's actually a fairly uh, sizable core position. Uh, in terms of Cleveland Cliffs, I'm taking cue from, from, uh, from my man, uh, Jim Labenthal, Farmer Jim. 
look, this has been left behind somewhat. It's done okay, but it doesn't get the headlines that others get. And again, this is very levered to the economy. It's got a great dynamic CEO. So I want to get some more exposure there. And that's why you could see him transitioning a little bit to the economy, uh, the new economy, which is the old economy. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm very comfortable with those positions. And it goes with my shaving some of my higher growth, the higher multiple right. ones, such as getting rid of PayPal, which was a small position. Uh, I also got rid of dividend stocks. I disagree with Jenny there. Uh, AY is gone uh, from that. That was a yield play, yield co. And I've also gotten rid of Enphase, which is solar company. Solar trade's been petering out recently. I think it'll come back, but not just yet. Well, I mean, you're thinking of the way that Shannon is a bit of, you know, rising yields make yield plays a little less desirable. It sounds like sort of plays right into that. Exactly. Joe, you know, you, you're taking something from Farmer Jim, too. You mentioned Alaska Airlines at the end, I believe, of Friday's show as your final trade. I did. And you went ahead and bought it. I did, Scott. I looked at the airlines over the weekend. I really studied them, and I want to focus on balance sheets because I do believe balance sheets matter. When you're looking at the airlines, Jimmy's got the right name here. This is a company that has $3.4 billion in cash. Think to yourself, can an airline in the environment of 2020 actually have the same debt level at the end of 2020 that it did at the beginning of 2020? Well, guess what? Alaska Air actually has that. So I think that's the name to be in here for a return to normalcy, uh, an environment that's been described by DeBracco and others. I think that's an important play. Real quick, Scott, one other trade I did. I got out of CNX and I went into Suncor. That's a turnaround story, and that's predicated on the higher pricing that you're seeing for oil the XLE had a significant breakout today above its June 8th, 46.88 high. That had been the highest level for the XLE since the pandemic. We now have the XLE breaking out significantly, and it's got a long way to go. Coming into 2020, the XLE was pricing at 61. Yeah. Um, all right. Good stuff, Joe. By the way, just quickly on the airlines, Joe's not the only one optimistic, at least about Alaska. Deutsche today upgrades a whole host of airlines, including Alaska Airlines uh, as part of that big call on the street today. All right, coming up, shares of Kohl's are soaring today as a group of activist investors takes a big stake in that retailer. One of them, Jonathan Duskin of Mcellum Advisors, joins me next. And the shakeup he is pushing for, where he thinks the stock can go from here. It's been a big winner of late. So what lies ahead? We'll talk to that man right there. We'll do it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Supreme Court has formally rejected several election challenges filed by former President Trump and his allies. Three conservative judges said that the cases should have been decided in order to give future guidance for future elections. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson laying out plans to slowly ease COVID restrictions. Children in England will return to class on March 8th and non-essential shops and pubs get to reopen on April 12th. At the International Space Station, a cargo ship has docked with four tons of supplies. It includes a big upgrade to the life support system. It also includes a little experiment using worms to learn about muscle loss that astronauts suffer from the lack of gravity. And the National Spelling Bee will return this year, although much of it will be virtual. Early rounds will be held remotely in mid-June with the finals at Walt Disney World in Florida on July 8th. So, Scott, they're limiting the in-person portion to about a dozen finalists, so a very different format, but at least it's coming back in some form. Yep, yep, certainly. All right, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Take a look at shares of Kohl's. They're up sharply today. On news that our next guest's firm, along with a group of investors, has taken a substantial position in the stock and is calling for major changes to the board. Jonathan Duskin is the CEO of Macellum Advisors. He's with us live today for an exclusive interview. It's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Good to see you it's as well. A, it's a big stake. Uh, you have a big letter, too, uh, as these things go, you know, 25 yep. pages or so. There are a lot of retailers out there, a lot of retailers whose stock is not up 100 percent in three months. Why Kohl's? Well, um, actually, if, if you were to look at um, Kohl's performance, you know, kind of pre-pandemic and off off the lows, off the, off the COVID lows, it actually is materially underperformed. Um, if you look at the XRT, you know, something that we use as a proxy to talk about retail, the XRT is up over 70 percent and, and Kohl's is, you know, barely up 10 percent. So, um, you know, despite having rallied, if you look at most of retail, it's really rallied. And, you know, we're really concerned with the period kind of before Kohl's, the decade or two leading up to, I'm sorry, before COVID, the decade or two leading up to that. So the fact this had a nice bounce off the COVID lows, we're not terribly impressed by. Uh, it's still underperforming. It still has one of the uh, one of the lowest valuations in the sector. So let's let's talk about what you want. You, you want nine seats on the board. That's a lot of seats. So effectively, you want control of the board. Um, I should also let you know that just moments ago, literally, we got a new statement from Kohl's uh, regarding what you're trying to do. And I'm going to read that and get your reaction to it. They say, quote, we reject the investor group's attempt to seize control of our board and disrupt our momentum, especially considering that we are well underway in implementing a strong growth strategy and accelerating our performance. And we have refreshed half our board with six new independent directors since 2016. We mentioned the stock performance. And sure, a lot of retailers have gotten a bump since the bottom. Um, but this company has laid out a plan. The stock seems to be performing. A lot of analysts have upgraded it. Why not let it go? Why not let the company and the board and the CEO figure it out and turn the ship? Well, Scott, let, let, me, let me try it a couple ways to answer that. First, um, take a guess what the stock price was in February of 2001. It was $50. 20 years, the stock has done nothing. The last decade, the stock has done nothing. 
Um, sales have been flat to down. EBIT is down 44%. It's dramatically underperformed its peer groups, uh, whether it's the XRT or the proxy peer groups or, or the, um, the ISS peer groups and other retailers. It's really dramatically underperformed. Um, you know, when you talk about their new plan, you know, we're, we're often reminded of their greatness agenda that they launched in 2014. And, uh, you know, to us, it's, it's, it's symptomatic of their inability to execute the plan that they lay out. In 2014, in the greatness agenda, they talked about uh, $21 billion in sales, $1.9 billion in EBIT. And um, for 2017, they missed that by 25%. And, and by the end of 2019, they'd missed those objectives by 36%. So in our mind, it's, it's really about their inability to execute the initiatives that they set for themselves. Uh, it's also about the lack of expertise in the boardroom. You know, you talked about nine might be a lot of directors. They don't have one single retail CEO on their board. Big box, small box, on mall, off mall, not one. Not hard goods or soft goods. Um, it's really amazing to think that um, a company would be able to succeed with that kind of board with no retail expertise in the boardroom. It's kind of shocking to us that they that they are not more willing to embrace the directors that we put forward. We put some incredible, incredible candidates uh, forward. So we're actually surprised that they're um, that they're not embracing our, our opportunity, to ha our offer to help. We really do just want to fix this business. It's a it's a good company. It could be a great company. Now, Kramer spoke highly of the slate. Uh, he did that earlier today. Um, are you willing to settle for less than nine? You know, look, we, we always want to work constructively with boards. We, we've been talking to the company since December. We've had multiple calls with, with their board and, and several directors. And, you know, we would like to work constructively. The, the fastest way, the quickest path to create value for all shareholders is if we can work together. But there needs to be significant change. We nominated nine directors because of the severity of the situation and the urgency that's needed. And we really think significant change is warranted. If we can work with the board and work constructively and get to a kind of common understanding of what needs to be accomplished, um, you know, I, I think we, we, we would be willing to have those conversations. You know, dragging this out in a public forum um, is not the best way to do that. So we, we would welcome further discussions, but we're uh, obviously happy to run this out all the way to the end, if we, as we've done in so many other campaigns. Well, you've, you've sort of been, you're the one who dragged it out in a public forum. I'm, I'm wondering why, why you did that now. Is it because the discussions that the company said you had already engaged in, for all intents and purposes, went nowhere and they weren't going to give you what you wanted? That, that's right. You know, we, we, we just got to a point where I, don't, I think they had their heads in the sand. I don't think they were, you know, um, terribly cognizant of uh, what their, you know, what what their side of the argument looked like and how poor we thought those arguments were. And um, and I think they were just really unwilling to budge. And we said, look, it's time to let the shareholders weigh in. Let's take this to the court of public opinion and let your shareholders understand what we, you know, what we think the problem is. And that we, we have an excellent solution, an excellent slate, an excellent plan to unlock value. I know we've talked a lot about the real estate, um, but there's a tremendous amount of trap value on the balance sheet that we think can create shareholder value. So I think what you're seeing in the stock price today are people really responding to what we put forth, that this is an, you know, an excellent plan, an excellent slate, um, a, a very qualified group of people that have had past successes in retail that are really here to help and make this a great company. Yep. Um, you know, sort of no disrespect in, in any way to Cole's management or to, to your outlook for what the company can be. But what about somebody sitting there who says maybe it's not fixable? L Lampert, he's smart. He, he thought Sears was fixable, not Ackman, he's smart. He thought pennies was fixable. Not. So maybe this is one of those. Yeah, you know, um, Scott, we don't see it that way, obviously. Um, you know, we look back over the last decade, there's been a significant numbers of fantastic retail turnarounds like Best Buy, like Target, like Bed Bath & Beyond. 
City Trends is another one we were involved in. Big Lots is another one we were involved in. And we really do think that um, retailers can be fixed. Um, you know, there, there's so 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 many um, companies that have weathered this storm and, um, you know, what's happening in e-com and omni-channel and have performed phenomenally well and taken share in this environment. And we think Kohl's has the opportunity to do that. Remember, Kohl's is one of the, you know, few department stores that is off-mall. And the convenience factor that was important pre-COVID is even more important today. They can do curbside pickup, buy online pickup in store. We think they're very well positioned. So we actually see a very bright future for this company with the right leadership, the right governance, uh, the right oversight of, of the management team. Let me ask you this. I mean, one of your, you know, the bullet points, if you will, of, of your strategy, and you, you alluded to it a moment ago, is the sale leaseback of some of the real estate. Who, who do you think a buyer would be? What, what, kind of, what kind of buyer would it be? Yeah, Scott, thank you. You know, um, if you look back at the last uh, two campaigns we've run and the two turnarounds we've effectuated, uh, one being Bed Bath & Beyond and the last one being Big, Big Lots, which just happened last year, um, we were partnered with a, a, a group called Oak Street, the private equity real estate investors, and um, they, uh, this, this is what they do. They focus on, on sale leasebacks, and um, you know, we believe they would have a very um, strong appetite to do a sale leaseback here. I'd also point out in... Um, both of those, uh, both of those um, turnarounds, there were multiple bidders for these properties. And, you know, Big Lots was just last year and Bed Bath was, was uh, really just um, at the end of 2019. Yeah, I don't have anybody on my investment committee today who actually owns Kohl's. But Steve Weiss, who I know that you've known for years, has a question for you. Steve? Yeah, nice about 30 years. Hey, John. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? So uh, glad to see you're still busy, uh, you know, and uh, I followed you and the others phenomenal plays you had there in terms of turning around. Listen, you Thanks. talked about some of the benefits of Kohl's. Talk, to, talk a little bit about their online strategy, because that's held a lot of companies back and has been the death of some companies. But you don't think that's the case here. You think it's actually doing okay. Yeah, you know, if, if you look at their e-com business, um, you know, it, it'll probably end up being around 30% of sales this year. Um, you know, maybe a little distorted because of, of COVID and the store closures. But let's call it high 20s. And that's a very solid, um, you know, percent of sales from e-com. Uh, they, they, they've done well with Omnichannel. You know, curbside pickup is actually, you know, something that um, is, is a benefit. Um, so I think their, their Omnichannel e-com option, uh, uh, offering could be much better. Um, you know, the website's not great. The interface isn't great. The adjacencies, they don't have stylists, you know, offering suggestions about um, uh, outfits uh, and outfitting, you know. So we do think, we do think things could be a lot better, but we think the pathway to really make, um, you know, create a lot of shareholder value and make a lot of money in the stock stems more from kind of what we call the retail 101s. Um, inventory management, getting the right merchandise to the right place, at the right price at the right time, getting the assortment, you know, balanced, um, you know, kind of taking away a lot of these meaningless brands that are just cluttering and confusing it, streamlining the promotional message, um, you know, getting the gross margin up getting the SGNA down, you know, if you look back to this greatness agenda that I referenced earlier, uh, you know, they've been talking about cutting costs for a decade. And, and, and SGNA has only gone up. It's up $450 million while sales are flat to down. So we think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, a lot of basic retail 101 that we can do here. We can effectuate a tremendous amount of change with, a, you know, much better capital allocation is going to result in a, you know, a really great opportunity to create shareholder value. You're looking for better management oversight, sales growth, margin improvement, among other things. I'm not sure how long you think that that all would take. But one thing I do find interesting and somewhat surprising, I guess, is, is on page seven of your letter where you directly reference the relationship that Kohl's has with Amazon, which you say you're skeptical of. 
where most people, I think, would say that that was a good relationship that that company has, uh, you know, improves engagement, gets people in the store for a variety of other reasons. Yeah, well, you know, I think um, I just want to clarify where, where our skepticism resides. You were skeptical of the profitability. I think it's um, with little question it's driven traffic into the stores. Now, the real question we have is how much incremental traffic, right? Bolt is a tremendous company with a, a far-reaching store base, and they, you know, they have 65 million, you know, private label credit card users. So they have a tremendous captured audience, and they drive a lot of traffic. The thing that we're skeptical of is how much incremental traffic is, and at what cost, right? It's very expensive to process these returns and get them back to Amazon. And they're also giving incremental discounts and coupons to people bringing Amazon returns. So um, we'd love it if they would disclose what the profitability is. You know, they'll talk to it at a high level, but they never share any details and kind of dismiss it out of hand. So um, yeah, that's one of the reasons we're skeptical. Um, we, we, we'd love to know what the numbers are behind it and, and have them share with us with transparency that it is as accretive as they say it is. We'd be we're thrilled with that. But, you know, looking back, as long as they've had this, they refuse to answer questions about the profitability here. Yeah. We'll see what happens going forward. Big day for the stock, a big day for your firm. I know, Jonathan, I appreciate the time very much. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Jonathan Duskin, Maselum Advisors, joining us there up next. Trades on the big calls of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back on the half right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back. Rahel's back with us, too, with our calls of the day. Hello. Hi, Scott. Yes, yeah, so lots of upgrades today in the retail space and one for Square. So let's start there with Mizuho giving Square a new street high price target of 380 a share. This is largely, Scott, on the growth of the cash app. That stock is up well over 200 percent in the past 12 months. And of course, casual wear and athleisure, that's been a hot trend. So Evercore is upgrading Foot Locker to outperform, setting the company's investments on the digital front and its stake in sneaker reselling site GOAT. Tapestry, the company that owns Coach and Kate Spade, sees its price target raised to $50 from $39 a share. That's over at Credit Suisse. So this is on a bullish view of the handbags category and growth in digital and in mainline China. Barclays is naming TJX a top pick for 2021. Firm likes off retail, Scott, and they think that TJX is the best option with a moat that's hard to replicate because of its global sourcing and demand. And last but not least, Target is seeing its price target raised to a street high of 260 a share at Bank of America. Scott, analysts expect stimulus and e-commerce momentum, momentum to support January sales. I'll send it back to you. All right. I think Pete agrees with that probably. So, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon there. Big week ahead for earnings. The committee getting you ahead of that with their trades next. We're back in two minutes for that. All right, big week of earnings on deck, as we said. Home Depot tomorrow morning. Everybody owns it, or at least most of you, most of you do, excuse me. Shannon, though, you get the word on it. 
Great. Well, Home Depot's obviously been a great stock as, as the uh, household formation trend has certainly continued. Um, you know, we're not likely to see 20 percent uh, gains like we saw last year, but they're going to continue to be able to exploit their one Home Depot strategy. And just to put it in perspective, mortgage originations last year were close to 2003, but 70 percent of the buyers had a, a credit score above 760 versus 30 percent in 2003. There's going to be plenty of money plowed back into home improvement, and Home Depot is the number one retail beneficiary of that. All right. Good stuff. We shall see coming up. Copper prices hitting levels not seen since 2011. We'll find out how the futures traders are playing that. We'll do it after this quick break. It's time for the futures outlook. Copper hitting its highest level since 2011 today. Bill Baruch joins us now with more on how to play that move. And it's been a nice move over the past many months. What now? Thanks, Judge. It has ripped your face-off rally uh, here in Copper. It's doubled from the March low, and it's only 10% away from its record high about a decade ago. I think there's more to go, and dips are buying opportunity. This chart has been terrific. I mean, it's not just the not just the fiscal stimulus, infrastructure spending, weaker dollar, zero interest rate policy, and then the vaccine rollout, which Copper's up 32% since the vaccine in November was announced. But we also have a great technical chart, double bottom from last March and a downtrend breakout. So I think there's more to go here. I'm buying May Copper 375. Sorry, 395. I'm buying. Stop at 375. Upside target is 455. So this trade is not for everybody. It's a big. It's a big contract copper. So you're risking about five grand to make 15 grand. All right. We'll see where it goes. Thank you, Bill Baruch. We'll talk to you soon. We'll do final trades after this quick break. We'll do final trades in just a minute. Weiss, why don't you start us off, though? You've got Jumia. It's reporting earnings this week. Stock's getting hit pretty good right now. You still in it, I would assume. And what's your outlook? Yeah, no, I still love it. Look, the stock's up four times since I originally spoke about it on the show. And I think this is just the beginning. With 2% online present, uh, with penetration in a population they address of 1.2 billion, this stock's going to keep going. I don't know what the quarter's going to be. I tell you, my read-throughs on the quarter are very, very positive, but you can't. it's impossible to say. So, yes, I'm still there. Mm-hmm. I'm not selling it. And in fact, if it dips, I will buy more. All right. Give me a quick final trade if you could, Steve. Moderna, cheapest stock I own by far. They report Thursday. Okay. Thank you for that. Jenny? Next week, Enterprise Products is hosting its inaugural ESG Investor Day. I'm excited to see them try to change minds. Meanwhile, 8.3% yield, 10 times earnings. Okay. Uh, Shan? Uh, Salesforce. Everybody is still digesting the Slack acquisition the same way that they did the Tableau acquisition. The way we do business has shifted. It's pivoted whether we go back to work or not. And this company is thinking about $50 billion in revenue by 2026. Quick name for me, Joey. KRE, M&A is back. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. And thanks for watching as well. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.